This episode of Motley Fool Industry Focus is brought to you by Away. Away makes first-class luggage at coach prices that allow you to charge your phone on the go. For $20 off your order, go to awaytravel.com slash fool and use the promo code fool. That's awaytravel.com slash fool, promo code fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, June 21st, and I'm your healthcare show host, Christine Hargis. Calling in to Fool HQ in Alexandria, Virginia, is healthcare specialist Todd Campbell. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Christine. My pleasure to be here. Anything new and exciting? Well, I'm a huge 90s rock and roll fan, and last night I went to go see one of my favorite bands, a band called Third Eye Blind. And I tell you, listeners, if you if you remember Third Eye Blind from the 1990s and you want to see a good show... If they come anywhere near you, um, get some tickets. It's, it was really, really entertaining. It was a nice show. That is amazing. I am so, so jealous. <laughs> what yeah, is? Yeah, it was. It was. It was a, a tremendous amount of fun, and this is my third time seeing that band, and um, and they still sound fresh and 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 great. It was really a good time. So you've seen them three times. Was that all recently, or did you like see them in the heyday and then? No, you know, I early... wish I had seen them. You know, way you know, in the early two thousands and late nineties, I all the times I've seen them have been in the last six years. Yeah, that's still pretty cool. What's your favorite song? Oh, gee, there's so many. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot album. here. <laughs> yeah, there's anything. The whole first album I love, and and it was we were lucky because they actually played that whole first album front to back uh, at the concert last night, which was just a real treat. Um, although we missed getting to hear some of the newer stuff, but it was it was still it was a lot of fun for someone like me who you know, spent a lot of time listening to them in the 90s. Yeah, and you're just sitting back there, like, mouthing along every single word. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a little in recovery, but I'll do my best today. All right, sounds good. Uh, we probably didn't pick the, the easiest batch of things to talk about today, given that you are trying to take it easy, but we are going to cover three different topics today. So hang in there, Todd. Um, you can, listeners, look forward to an update on Abvi. We will do some updates on the AMD market, including the battle between Regeneron and Novartis heating up. And we're also going to cover the story behind Clovis Oncology's 46% pop on Monday, which if that doesn't say biotech, I don't know what does. But we will start with the Abvi updates. What is what is going on with Abvi? I thought it was important to talk about Abvi because we really, you know, we haven't covered it in a while. We haven't updated listeners on it. Yeah, it's one of the biggest biopharma companies in the world. You know, it's a, it's a huge company that generate a lot of revenue, and if they market the top-selling drug on the planet, so it's important to to stay aware of what they're up to and see whether or not there might be some money to make um, in going out and considering an investment in them. Especially considering you know it's it's getting harder and harder to find uh, companies with decent dividend yields. A lot of the dividend yields in the healthcare have been driven down. But AbbVie still, you know, yields out 3.6%. And that's that's pretty solid. It's pretty attractive. Yeah, solid is the word that I would use for that as well. So AbbVie is best known for Humira, which is the world's best-selling drug. It's an anti-inflammatory used for a ton of different indications like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. There's a whole laundry list of different indications that it's approved for. And this drug makes a lot of money. When AbbVie released its Q1 earnings on April 27th, they reported total revenues of $6.54 billion. And of that, Humira sales were $4.1 billion. So that's 63% of their total revenues coming from this one drug. Just a huge impact on this company. 
And the elephant in the room, Christine, whenever we talk about biopharma, right, is always going to be when do patents expire? What's what's the patent expiration um, situation? Especially when you've got a drug that accounts for 63% of your sales. And unfortunately for AbbVie, and this has been a, a drag on the, the company's share price until the last uh, year or so, uh, there's been a lot of worry because Humira's um, patent has uh, is starting to come off. They're starting to lose patent protection on this drug. And that's got a lot of people wondering, hey, you know, could biosimilars get launched that significantly erodes the sales and then the profit and then correspondingly the potential for future dividend increases? You know, and, and that's a real risk um, that the company's been been trying to navigate around by investing very heavily in its research and development to try and diversify uh, itself further and further away from just being a Humera only type company. So right now they're spending 17.4% of their revenue on research and development R&D. Todd, how would you grade their R&D efforts? Are they successfully spinning away from reliance on Humira? I I think that they are heading in the right direction. I give them a, a B plus, um, and I'd, I'd consider giving them an A minus. You know, a couple more approvals come along in the next year or so. so you come know, to a couple more study halls. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, a little bit more homework needs to get done. Um, you know, this is this company is smart because not only are they the Goliath in autoimmune disease, which is you know I think it's like a fifty billion dollar market, right? Um, but they're also said, you know what? I think that we can become a really big player in oncology, and the oncology market is worth ninety billion. So they've gone out and they've established they're establishing themselves as a leader uh, at the onset here in blood cancers, but over time, uh, they have some drugs that are coming along and through their pipeline, like Roba-T, that could uh, expand them into a, a variety of different cancer indications, and eventually uh, offset any risk and loss of sales on, on Humira, uh, Humira biosimilars. You know, one of the things that, you know, you and I have probably talked about at some point in the past year or two on this subject is this, that you know biosimilars um, aren't exact replicas and because of that uh, the thinking is that they might you know win market share a little bit more slowly than say a generic typical generic drug might um, AbbVie's got some method of use patents that kind of provide some Humira patent protection out until like 2000 early 2020s even if biosimilars launch before then, maybe their sales go from their projection of 18 billion in 2020 to what, 16 billion or 14 billion. So, you know, to offset that headwind, you really only need a couple blockbuster drugs to launch. Right. And this is a company that has been fairly successful with their R&D so far. They have one blood cancer drug, Imbruvica, that is already on the market. It made uh, half a billion dollars last quarter. That was up 45% year over year. There's an FDA decision for a label expansion of Imbruvica coming up. Uh, AbbVie also has a pan-genotype hepatitis C therapy that could be the best on the market so far. That's, that's also coming up. Um, and then when you look at the overall picture, so the company, as you mentioned, is guiding for Humira sales of 18 billion in 2020. And you know, as you said, that could be that's an estimate. You know, it's many years down the road. But they're also guiding for in that same year other drugs totaling 25 to 30 billion dollars. And so that is a pretty favorable ratio. I mean, when you look at today, Humira is 63 percent of revenue. 
and compare that to the 2020 projections where Humira should bring in 18 billion, but other drugs should bring in 25 to 30 billion. You can see that they do have a decreased reliance on this potential single point of failure already in their guidance. Yeah, I mean, we we you you mentioned that hepatitis C. We shouldn't ignore that, right? Because you know we're still talking about billions and billions of dollars that are being spent every year on hepatitis C drugs, and this is probably the most competitive one to launch um, uh, against the market share leader, which is Gilead Sciences. Um, you know, 99% functional cure rates at the 12 week mark, and evidence of efficacy 95% cure rates after eight weeks of treatment in genotype three patients. So this could be right there, um, a billion to two billion dollar drug. Um, Rova T, uh, which is a very intriguing drug that could be getting up getting used in uh, third line use in small cell lung cancer, and eventually get advanced up even further. Than that they think that that drug could eventually have five billion in peak sales projections. And you know, Christine, that doesn't even talk about or address the successors to Humira that are in the pipeline that this company is developing. They're working on drugs and have phase three trials already ongoing for uh, rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis, two of the biggest uh, indications that Humira sells into. So if those drugs are successful and they do better than Humira in their trials, uh, maybe they can convert people away from Humira to these new drugs and protect market share that way. You know, so yes, there is risk, and we don't know how the biosimilar market is going to shake shake out for this company over the course of the next five years. Um, so yes, you're accepting some risk if you go out and you buy this stock, but they do have a lot of different uh, shots on goal that could pan out and help them, um, say, sidestep. Right, so we will be watching for any reports from uh, progress on the pipeline, and we'll also be taking a look at their Q2 earnings, which come out later this month. Thanks to Away for supporting our podcast. Away makes affordable, high-quality suitcases that charge your phone and start at just $225. Their suitcases have two USB ports and a high-capacity battery that allow you to charge multiple devices on the go, so that you never have to worry about a dead phone or fighting for an outlet at the airport. Many of us at The Motley Fool have tried out Away's suitcases, and we've all been fans. They are super high quality, they're made of lightweight yet durable polycarbonate, and my personal favorite part was the wheels. There are four of them, they all spin in 360 degrees, and they don't get stuck, unlike the clunky two wheels on what I have been using previously. Try Away out for 100 days, and if you're not as impressed as we were, you can return it for a full refund. For $20 off of your order, go to awaytravel.com fool and use promo code fool at the checkout. All right, so we have just been discussing AbbVie and what to look for in the near term and longer term. And we wanted to pivot our discussion to a second topic for today, and that is the state of uh, the AMD market, which is age-related macular degeneration. This is a top cause of vision loss in people ages 50 plus. And as we all know, the demographics in the United States in particular are shifting towards people living longer lives. And this is, right in the name of it, an age-related disease. Um, there are also the same types of diseases uh, that affect diabetics, particularly people who have been diabetic for a long, long time. And so these two indications um, that we're going to talk about are only getting more prevalent. And so the, uh, the drug makers that are looking to capture market share in this space have a big reason to believe that it could be a, a huge growth driver for them. This has been a massively lucrative uh, indication 
for the, the companies that are, are targeting it. And it makes sense, right? There's 76 million baby boomers. Average life expectancy is 86 years and growing, right? And then you look at the diabetes population and how you know that's expanding uh, globally. I think I saw recently an estimate that we could go from on a global basis 400 million people with diabetes to uh, 640 million. So I add another 240 million people with diabetes over the course of the next 20 or so, 25 years. You know, so this is a, a major uh, addressable market. And, you know, the drugs that are available right now that are being used in it are made by or marketed by Novartis, uh, Regeneron, and then there's some co-licensing deals in there. And then Roche plays also in this space through Aviston, which is used off-label. But if you look at the just, you know, the money that's being brought in by these, these vision-restoring drugs for these conditions, um, in the first quarter alone, you, you, you analyze, annualize it out just for um, Regeneron's Ilia and uh, Novartis's Lucentis, and you've got like an $8 billion annualized pace for those two drugs alone, not including any uh, sales that are being won away from Aviston. Right. And it's really interesting. You mentioned that Avastin is being used off-label. Avastin is actually a cancer drug, and Roche is the maker of it. But this drug actually has 60% of the market share in the wet AMD indication. And that's because it's so much cheaper. It's roughly $40 a dose instead of close to 2000 And this is something that, if you have this condition, you need to go to the doctor on a regular basis to be treated for it. And so, when when you have uh, your Regeneron with Ilea and you have Novartis with Lucentis trying to figure out how they can get more and more of the market share here, what they're going to be competing on is going to be dosage. If they can make it more convenient for patients who don't have to go to the doctor as frequently, that is how you can actually differentiate yourself in this space. Yeah, so far, Christine, the, the battle hasn't been fought over efficacy, right? Then no one, not one of these drugs like Lucentis and, and Ilia, you know, they're not, they're not much more efficacious one or the other. I mean, there's some anecdotal evidence that Ilia works better in um, tough-to-treat patients, right? Uh, but for the most part, it really just comes down to doctor preference and patient burden. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, I was talking earlier about the sales in the first quarter. If you break that out, Lucentis sales in the first quarter globally were $850 million. And Ilia's sales were 1.3 billion. Now, Lucentis has been on the market since the mid 2000s, and Ilia has only been on the market since 2011. So, why is it that Lucentis, with that first mover advantage, actually wrecks in less in sales than Ilia? And as you mentioned, it's all because of patient dosing burden. You know, in the case of Lucentis, you're you're uh, getting these eye inject injections into your eye on a monthly basis, right? But with Ilia, you can have after your loading dose, which is three one three monthly injections. You can go to every two months, so eight week dosing. So, so that dosing advantage, reducing the burden of having to go to the office and, and you know getting these eye injections, that's allowed them to become the dominant player. And what's really intriguing is that Ilia's advantage has allowed it to to become a, a five billion a year uh, medicine at this point may disappear soon based on some data that came out of Novartis earlier this week. Right, and here's where the story gets really interesting. So, Novartis is developing a rival drug called RTH-258, and this drug is intended to be dosed every 12 weeks. 
And so they were studying this drug versus ILEA, and they were trying to keep as many patients as possible on the 12-week schedule. And they found that a little bit over 50% of patients were able to achieve non-inferiority using the Novartis drug as opposed to ILEA. And that was their, their primary endpoint was they just didn't want it to be worse. Because again, we're not looking for these drugs to be more effective necessarily. It really is going to come down to a dosing schedule. Yeah, right now we don't have, it doesn't look like we have anything that's going to, to improve how well um, the outcome for the patient as far as letters on standard eye chart, right? So the key here is again, it, reduce patient burden, get them in the office fewer and fewer times. And sure enough, these two head-to-head -head trials that Novartis ran accomplished that for many patients, not all of them, right? A little bit better than half. In one of the trials, it was 57% that were able to stay on the 12-week uh, dosing rather than the eight-week dosing. In the other trial, it was 52%. But you're still talking about half of patients not having to get um, get these injections on an eight-week schedule. And that could be, time will tell, right? That could be enough to establish itself as yet another billion-dollar player in this space. And it's certainly, you know, there's a lot of, I guess another investing takeaway here, Christine, is that there's a, there's, there's, there's a huge market. And with Avacyn having so much market share, I, I would probably argue there's room for all three of these drugs, and uh, it, but we'll have to see. I mean, the, the, the soonest this drug is likely to make it, RTH258 is likely to make it to the market, in my view, would probably be early 2019, depending on you know whether or not they're able to get an application to the FDA early or mid-year of 2018. But you know, it, it's definitely one to watch because it's going to have big implications on this indication. So another interesting part of the story is that Regeneron's stock actually jumped 5% when Novartis reported its phase 3 results yesterday on June 20th. And that it blew my mind when I first saw it because these are on the surface positive results for Regeneron's main competitor to ILEA, which is 65% of Regeneron's revenue. Why did the stock go up? It could simply be by the new situation. I mean, Regeneron's stock was one of the best performing biotech stocks for a decade. And then it hit a wall in 2015 when it launched a new cholesterol-lowering drug that really didn't live up to expectations, at least not yet. Then they had some setbacks with some FDA application that had been filed that ended up getting rejected because of the manufacturing concerns. Things, however, in 2017 are turning around for them. They've won two different um, drugs, have won FDA approval. Both of those drugs could be multi-billion dollar drugs. And then, I guess you could say, theoretically, it could have been worse, right? It could have been 60% or 70% or yeah, 80%. That's my speculation here, is that these results weren't as strong from Novartis as people were anticipating. Yeah, I mean, I saw some industry watchers saying, hey, if it's greater than 40%, then you know, you've got a winner on your hands. But again, it's to what degree do you have a winner on your hands, right? right. And if, if you're a doctor, an ophthalmologist, and you're saying, oh, you know, 80% versus 50%, I'll just use RTH258 all day long because 80% of my patients, I, you know, it's more of a toss up, right? It's a coin flip now. 
Exactly. And, and who knows how this market could be entirely disrupted. Uh, my mom worked in the ophthalmology field for a while, and she was mentioning to me when I was talking to her about this earlier that they have slow-release technologies now where you d- insert a device into the eye and it leaks out a little bit of a drug over a long period of time. I think that it, when it comes down to it, this market is so huge and so clearly growing that there's room for multiple players, as you mentioned, and also probably room for disruption. I would agree with that, and obviously the the real disruption will come with anybody who can who can permanently re- repair vision and restore vision with uh with you know one injection, right? I mean, Absolutely. But- I mean, and that that's ultimately the biggest disruptor that you can have in healthcare is when something goes from needing a maintenance therapy to being cured. Right, but we're so far away from that. I mean, as, as far as I know, we're 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 nowhere near. Having anything like that. In yeah, this is this is pure future thinking speculation here. But so bring it back down to more current news. We wanted to cover as the last topic on today's show the 46% stock pop that happened on Monday for Clovis Oncology and its very happy shareholders. If if you're listening and you're not following the battle in PARP inhibitors, then you're missing out on a very exciting. Um, uh, war, if you will, between three companies, Clovis being one of them, to establish themselves as the leader in um, in treating ovarian cancer. And Clovis had some pretty remarkable data out um, this past week that suggests that they are potentially as good as their other two competitors. And those two competitors are AstraZeneca, which markets Limparza, and Tesaro, which uh, just won in March approval for Zajula. For a little bit of background, for those of us that are not total healthcare nerds like you and I are, Todd, uh, PARP inhibitors, what are they? So Okay, so <laughs> yeah, PARP, PARP proteins, they're associated with repairing DNA, uh, maintaining genetic stability. They have to do with programmed cell death. So essentially, think of it this way. You take chemotherapy, the cancer cell gets damaged, and uh-oh, PARP goes in and tries to fix the damage. You don't want that. Right. When it happens in normal cells, it's a great thing. But if you can block this mechanism in cancer cells, then it's an attempt to trigger genomic instability, and hopefully it will lead to the cancer cell being unable to repair itself and thus dying. And the mechanism in action, that target, I mean, it's been validated. You know, Limparza won approval in 2014. So you've now talking about, you know, uh, over two years of, of, of use of of PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer. Um, Rubraca, which is Clovis's drug, that just hit the market in December, and Zujula just won approval in March. So this is a fast heating up market, um, but it has nine figure plus potential. Right. And so it had been looking like Tassara's Zajula had the advantage because it's approved as a maintenance therapy in ovarian uh, cancer patients who have received one or more chemotherapies, regardless of their BRCA status, whereas the other ones were more specific in their indication and they were only for later lines. And- okay. Yeah, that's a good point, Christine. You know, let's go backwards for a second. Okay. BRCA mutations were thought to be the ones that would respond best to PARP inhibitors. So a lot of the early research that was done on PARP inhibitors focused on BRCA-mutated patients, which represent only about 15 to 20% of the ovarian cancer population. So when Limparza won approval in 2014, it was approved for use after three prior chemotherapies in BRCA-positive patients. 
And when 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 BRCA won uh, its approval in December, similarly, it was approved for use in BRCA positive patients. Uh, but it was approved in two in patients who had had two or more um, prior chemotherapies. And then, like you said, to sorrow, they really kind of changed the game in March when they won their approval because no longer do you have to do the testing to see if they're BRCA positive. Uh, it could be used in all ovarian cancer patients and it can be used in ovarian cancer patients following one prior chemotherapy. So these drugs are getting used earlier and earlier in treating an ovarian cancer. And that's very important because we need to remember that ovarian cancer uh, has a tendency to return in most patients. And that can mean that you know patients currently are receiving three, four, five, or more different lines of treatment over the course of time. So anything that we can do to extend the duration of the response and prevent having to go into another treatment cycle is a good thing. And that's why these drugs, I think, um, are, are going to be very important in top sellers. Right. There's a huge need for new approaches here. There are 220,000 ovarian cancer patients in the United States. The five-year survival rate is only 47%. So as you mentioned, this is a gigantic market where there is a true need for companies to figure out how to extend the the length of response of these patients. And the new Rubraca data was very promising. It showed that it is effective in the same setting that we were talking about as Zajula. So, um, people who are uh, Irregardless of whether they are BRCA positive or not, um, it works, and that is after one or more chemotherapies. And when you look down the line a little bit more, all three of these companies that we've mentioned, Clovis, AstraZeneca, and Tesaro, they're all studying in the first-line setting. Yes, and that's obviously, the, you know, if you can get into the first line, uh, across a broad, if you get a broad label, so all of your cancer patients in a front-line setting, um, that would be a, a major win. Um, what's interesting to me, though, Christine, I think from an investing standpoint, you know, do I pick a Rubraca? Do I pick a Tesaro? Do I go with AstraZeneca? It's it's too early, right? It's too hard because it looks like there's a class-wide effect for these drugs. So, you know, if they all end up getting favorable labels that allow their use in the broad patient population, ovarian cancer patients, right, and they all end up getting approved eventually for uh, frontline. Uh, use well, who's going to win her? I don't know. I mean, again, this is a big enough market where it can support all of them, and maybe they'll all be, you know, nine-figure drugs. I don't know whether or not we can even draw a conclusion at this point, though, that one is going to dominate and the other two will be niche drugs. Right, and Clovis is, I would say, the most speculative way to play on this. I mean, if it's forty-five percent pop on Monday, is any. Uh, indication that it's a fairly volatile stock. Even after the jump, they, their market cap is still just under $4 billion, making them the smallest of these three. Um, they announced another round of dilution, so they're, they're kind of still at this point where they're not making money and they're not expected to be profitable until 2019. And so now they, they had $400 million in cash on the balance sheet. This will add some more. So they're not as risky as, say, your clinical stage biotech with hardly any cash and no drugs actually approved yet, but still not nearly as established as, say, AstraZeneca. Yeah, you could, right. You could say that AstraZeneca is probably your least, least, risky way to play this, but then of course you've got patent expiration risk across other drugs that AstraZeneca has, so you got to take that into consideration. Tesoro has is been bid up to, to, to highs because uh, people think that, hey, maybe someone's going to end up coming in and, and acquiring them. Clovis, perhaps that's one of the reasons too. 
Um, Absolutely. You know, following this data, somebody comes up and, and makes them an offer as well. So it's it's a very risky space. It's very intriguing. It's definitely worth watching. For sure. And uh, these drugs are also potentially being studied in breast cancer, so they could have even wider implications than just ovarian cancer. Todd, anything else before I sign us off? No, I just hope everybody has a great day today. And uh, again, if you get a chance, go out and see Third Eye Blind. Great show. Sounds good. Thanks, Todd. And get some rest. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!